when I was younger, I used to say that my biggest fear was to grow old and be on my deathbed and say, I never missed a day of work. Like that, that was the best thing that I, you know, I mean, I, I have a strong work ethic and there's nothing wrong with never missing a day of work, but my biggest fear was to just live a life that in a career that wasn't what I was passionate about. So I've always pursued my passion, but it's never been about the money. I made more money as an attorney than I make as a washing maker easily, but I wouldn't go back to that at all. I, I, I'm doing what I love. And to me, that's way more valuable than the dollars in the bank account. Mark Reed moved overseas to teach English, eventually became a professor and a lawyer before marrying the love of his life and devoting his time to their family business, making traditional Japanese paper called washi. Another unconventional career path we're exploring here on Bucket List Careers. I'm Crystal Laurie. Welcome back to the show. Mark also hosts a show himself called Zen Sandwich. The theme is to take a pragmatic, real-world approach to Zen thought, i.e. realistic secular Zen, to bring some calm and kindness to the world around you. That sounds good, doesn't it? This is someone to learn from, I promise you. He's honest, his choices weren't always perfect, but he says his destination most certainly is. Let's listen. Hi, Mark. Thanks so much for being on Bucket List Careers with me. Hey, thanks for having me. Okay, well, your story. Professor and lawyer turned Japanese paper maker. <laughs> That's a first for this show. An American living in Japan, host of your own podcast. This is going to be a good one. I know it. And I love the fact that we connected on LinkedIn from different continents. How did you find me, actually? It was through two social media platforms, we are in the same Facebook group. I had made a post one day. Someone had said it was about marketing your podcast. Yeah. And I had made a comment that I had learned the hard way not to just constantly throw out audiograms and constantly bombard people. And an audiogram, of course, is just like a picture with the little wave underneath and the sound promoting the show. Right. A little 30 second blurb, a little clip from yeah. the show. And which is what most podcasters, especially people who are new at this, this is, that's what they do to market it. Yeah. Thing is, you're just constantly pushing and selling your show that way. And just like a used car salesman, it's sort of a put off. Mm. And I had made a comment that I had learned that my marketing the numbers improved on my show when I was a real person and I interacted with people. I'm still in those podcast groups, but I answered their question instead of just pushed them directly to my show. Yeah. And you had, getting back to your original question, you had given <laughs> me the thumb up like on my comment. So I'm like, who's this? Who's, who's Chris Laurie? And then, uh, so, you know, then I did my vetting and research and I found you on LinkedIn. And we're such a perfect fit, right? Well, when I read the description of your show, I thought, okay, this is a podcast that's like written for my life. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I'm really thrilled you reached out because delving into your journey is going to be perfectly suited to the pivots and also just the takeaways that we want people to get, what you've learned, not just your resume, right? But how you overcame roadblocks and all that. So let's talk about your bucket list career and what lights you up about it. Because you told me you absolutely found it in Japanese papermaking. And I don't know a lot about it. I did a little research. I watched a YouTube video and now I'm obsessed with it. <laughs> how did you get into it? 
Well, the real pivot was just interest in Japanese culture. I mean, that, that's really where it started. And that goes all the way back to college. I went to University of Alabama, and there was a language requirement. I had already taken Spanish in high school. Anyway, long story short, I was like, why not Japanese? So that was my minor. And I enjoyed it so much. I found out about teaching opportunities in Japan. So that was my first job out of college, uh, was teaching English at junior high schools. And it was a gradual process that, so instead of one particular pivotal moment, uh, I just fell in love with the culture. Right. So it wasn't like washy from the beginning. That, that came much later. And do you actually get hands-on involved in making the paper? And I know you do it with your wife and it's a family business. Tell us how it works. We do everything. I mean, we grow the trees. We harvest the trees. We steam them. We strip the bark from the trees. We then clean the bark. We go through the entire process. It, it is more or less a year-long process. So like in the winter, we are harvesting the trees and then we dry them out. And I mean, there's just so much, there's too much to go into to describe the entire process. But That's another podcast, perhaps. Right. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to actually uh, create a documentary. I'm going to record everything we do over the course of a year to show from like sapling to a piece of paper, <laughs> you know, like the entire thing. And the uses are so varied. I know and we're going to get into your origins and how you got there, but I had no idea. I thought it was just used for calligraphy, but it's really a very essential part of Japanese culture. I think that's super cool. Yeah. I mean, it, this style of papermaking goes back over a thousand years. So the paper itself is far more durable than just like a sheet of paper that you might typically use. It's going to be machine made paper. Right. But it's, of course, it's going to be a lot more expensive because it goes through such a lengthy process. But, you know, but the fibers in the trees are just so much more durable than the machine version that you get with regular copy paper. Right. And you're sitting in front of a screen made of washi right now as we're right. speaking on this Zoom. It, exactly. <laughs> so cool. So, yeah, I mean, case in point, if I bumped into that, it's still paper. I mean, I could penetrate a hole through it. But it is harder. It's a little bit tougher than just regular paper. So it's more durable. Interesting. I know you're a Bama boy, as you told me. <laughs> can, you, can you hear from my accent? I try to turn A little it down. bit. And you say that you never went anywhere growing up. Correct. You had an affinity for studying maps and wanting to see the world. That's true. And that's a big part of what shaped you. So let's talk origins. <laughs> well, I grew up in uh, Birmingham, Alabama, which for people who aren't familiar with it. Birmingham is more cosmopolitan, more metropolitan than people give it credit for. It, it, they just hear Alabama and they think, you know, the worst. But <laughs> Birmingham actually is a, an international city. I, I'm grateful I grew up there. And at the same time, it is a conservative culture. And, I, you know, not to speak of anything politically, it just, it's just a conservative place to be. But I was always a curious young person. And I never got an opportunity to go beyond Alabama and the four states gotcha. that surrounded Tennessee, Georgia, Mississippi, Florida. So the moment I graduated college, I was, I was gone. So you left Alabama for Japan to teach, and eventually you became a professor. Yeah. Well, my first job was teaching English at junior high schools in Japan. Mm -hmm. At that time, I just had a bachelor's. And then I went back to Florida State University to get my master's, and that is in religious studies philosophy, ethics, and religion. I taught there as a graduate teaching assistant and then later became a professor back in Japan in 04-05 at Kanagawa University and at Tokyo University of Science back in English. Mm -hmm. That's where I met my wife. We didn't get married then, but we, we met and we dated then. So that was about 15, 16 years ago. Okay. 
I left and made another pivot. I came back to the United States, went to law school and became an attorney. And what was behind that decision? Well, <laughs> my wife indirectly, because she, she was in love with the show Sex and the City. Okay. <laughs> I yeah, love it. You, this, this is going to take a pivot more than you, you think. <laughs> and, you know, so she was a fan of Mr. Big. I, I was more of Aiden from the show. And then I thought, <laughs> yes. And you know what? This show, obviously, it's from years ago, but I think they have a reboot coming out. So this is all <laughs> going to be very relevant quite soon. <laughs> Go on. I hope your demographic is an older audience that remembers this show. But, uh, <laughs> I hope to think it's diverse. I probably am kidding myself. Well, there you but, go. So she was into Sex and the City. And I mean, Mr. Bennett, did you actually go to New York City as a result? Well, I went, I had gotten into several law schools. Well, you know, I thought, all right, fine. She chooses Mr. Big over Aiden. I, then fine. I'm going to go be, I'm going to go become Mr. Big. So I went. To, <laughs> I got it. Well, I mean, you know, this is a bit of an exaggeration. I didn't go to law school solely with the hopes of landing my future, well, now current wife, but it was motivation for me almost to prove to myself that I can do it. I knew that I could. I knew that I could go to law school. I knew that I had the right. ability and I was a double major in college, political science and religion. I got the master's in religion, but then I went back to law school to do something with the political science side of it. So I became an attorney. Mm. So, that, you know, that's sort of a convoluted way to tell you how I, how I went into law. But you weren't going for a big corporate job. That's not really what you were striving for, but something attracted you to law and you became an assistant district attorney. Right. My interest when I got to law school was in the courtroom, specifically criminal law. And I, I landed sort of my dream job when I got out. I was a prosecutor in upstate New York. I did that for a while, but then I did go to corporate law. Okay. I went back to my home state of Alabama and I worked for a large firm there, Maynard Cooper and Gale in securities law. So I went from criminal law into civil litigation. And this is a big firm. It it's not breaking any attorney-client privilege to tell you their clients. I'm sure it's listed on their website. Sure. They represent Bank of America. They represent Merrill Lynch, right? So I went from misdemeanor criminal cases to big-time corporate law. And which of those paths did you enjoy more? Because then you eventually became a professor again. So something wasn't working for you in that role as a lawyer in two different areas, as a corporate attorney as well as a prosecutor. I enjoyed being a criminal prosecutor more. Mm -hmm. But I will be honest about the legal profession. You know, I kind of saw the dark side of both. In one way, it's an admirable pursuit as a criminal prosecutor. The idea is I want to wear the white hat and put bad people away, criminals. But, you know, I also saw some shadier sides of law enforcement. I'm not calling anyone out or I'm not going to stir up any controversy here. But I would get cases on my desk that I thought, Eh, is, was a crime committed here or is, is this just an overzealous police officer looking to make a quota? You know, so I left that. Mm -hmm. And then when I go to the corporate side of law, I'm representing big banks. And this was after the 08 market crash where you might have a little old lady who her husband maybe has passed and she's got his pension and she puts it in the market. And the Merrill Lynch person tells her, hey, I'll take care of your money and market crashes, and she's losing all that investment, and then she's going to sue Merrill Lynch. Well, she's using Joe Smith lawyer against us, and there, there's 20 of us working against her, and it, it just didn't feel right. So I didn't do anything morally wrong or ethically wrong, but I was losing sleep at night. 
So I had to walk away. Well, and you had that self-awareness. And I think that that's a big part of what we're trying to explore here. Sure. How do you get that self-awareness to say to yourself, okay, I want to go back to teaching, which is what you did. And you were teaching English in Japan after that. Again, yes. <laughs> but you walked away from all of it in 2019. Yes. To achieve your bucket list career and you got married. So let's talk about that and how you got there. I got a job teaching at Ritsumeikan APU, Asia Pacific University, as a professor of English there and rekindled my relationship with my wife. But it was at that time a distance relationship. Ultimately, that wasn't going to work. I'm uh, you know, too old for that. Basically, the invitation was there for me to become a part of her business. So yeah, why not? <laughs> but what were some of your reservations? Because when we spoke prior to the show, you talked a lot about fear from your family members. Like, oh, wait, what, what are you doing, Mark? <laughs> right, 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 right. So how did you resist that? I guess I've always been, from the very beginning, like someone who is just willing to take a chance because from a young age, I've always had that mindset of this is my one life. I don't think I'm going to be reincarnated. When I was younger, I used to say that my biggest fear was to grow old and be on my deathbed and say, I never missed a day of work. Like that, that was the best thing that I, you know, I mean, I, I have a strong work ethic and there's nothing wrong with never missing a day of work, but my biggest fear was to just live a life that in a career that wasn't what I was passionate about. So I've always pursued my passion, but it's never been about the money. I made more money as an attorney than I make as a washing maker easily, but I wouldn't go back to that at all. I, I, I'm doing what I love. And to me, that's way more valuable than the dollars in the bank account. So the fear of the unknown, living an unconventional life, you just push that aside. Was that the hardest thing that you had to overcome? Yeah, but you know how there are adrenaline junkies, like guys who, or, or women who, uh, you know, bungee jump or skydive. And I haven't bungee jumped. I haven't skydived, do doven, diven, <laughs> but, uh, you know, and I don't have, I don't have that adrenaline uh, aspiration, but there is an adrenaline junkie in me in terms of like travel, mm. not just traveling, but taking the road less traveled to use a oft quoted poem there. I remember when I was 21, I just graduated college and I'd gotten a job in Japan and I'm on the airplane and I was shaking. I was sweating. I was like, what the heck am I doing, man? I, and then that door shut and they air pressurized, you know, shut the door. And it's like, I mean, it's really too late. I'm going. This is happening. Yeah, this is happening. And this, I can't, I can't turn it around now. And then for like the next three days, it was just this whirlwind of activity. Like I had these orientations in Tokyo and then they shipped me out to where my first job was, which was in Nagano Canyon. Anyway, and, and there, there were all these orientation activities. And finally, I get into my apartment that's going to be mine. And I've met everyone and I've signed all the papers and the door shuts and I'm alone for the first time. And it was quiet and it almost freaked me out. But there was such an adrenaline rush of like, wow, I am in the middle of Japan. I did this. And there is no getting <laughs> out. There is no teleporting me out of here. I mean, that I am here to do it. Yeah, no, I can see how that would be empowering. Yes, it was. It was. Because like you said, you always wanted to live your life so you didn't look back and say, oh, you know, why didn't I try that or why didn't I do that? Yeah, and in fact, I would say that if that didn't happen to me right out of college, I don't know that 
hardly any of my life would have gone the way it did. Taking the leap to move to Japan right out of college. Yeah. It really set the course for the rest of my life to take chances. I failed too. <laughs> I just want to make it clear. <laughs> yeah, of course. You know, of I, course. What success story doesn't have failures along right. the way? I also think you're an excellent example of a midlife career change, which I find, I mean, I'm always in awe of people that do something like a huge 180, right? Mm. You really shook it up <laughs> by going into paper making. So what kind of advice do you give to people that have self-doubt standing in the way? How do you help that person who just isn't taking the leap that he or she knows should happen? My wife and I, we have an expression that we use often called one wall at a time. And it came from when I was back in the States, this is before I came back over here in, in 2018. We had been rekindling our relationship through online, and she came to visit me in the United States. And at that time, I was commissioned to paint the interior of a house. And it was an overwhelming project because it was to paint the entire interior of the house, the kitchen, the bathrooms, the hall, the bedrooms, all of it, just me. And it was so daunting. And it was like, I, I don't even know what to begin. I don't know what to do. I remember talking to her about it and how I got started and how I finished it. I got the mindset. All right, Mark, I know I got the whole house to do. I'm just going to do this one wall right in front of me. And I'm not even going to be tempted to like go over here and paint a little on this wall while I'm doing this first wall. Nope. I'm going to finish this first wall before I go on to the next wall. And I did. I finished that first wall. All right. I turned my attention to the next wall and I only focused on that next wall. Keeping in mind, I've got to do the whole house, but doing it one wall at a time and Doing it that way, the whole house, it became doable, and I got it done, and I finished the whole thing. So that would be my advice. Yeah, take one wall at a time. Yeah, I love that story. It's real. It's symbolic. You're saying don't get overwhelmed by all the tasks involved in making a change, but focus on steps to some extent. Anything like the, the podcasting, my podcast, for example. Yes, let's talk about Zen Sandwich. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which... By the way, Zen Sandwich, just explain the origin of that name. You know, I told you that I had a double major, political science and religion. Right. But I wouldn't call myself a religious person. I, I, in fact, I wouldn't say Zen is a religion. And so I didn't want it to be a name that was taken too seriously, hence the sandwich part. So right. it's like a Zen sandwich, but it's a sandwich. <laughs> it's not to be taken too seriously. <laughs> Because it really, it, it's <laughs> ironic. I, you know, I'm in some of these Facebook Zen groups, and there will be these people that will argue back and forth about the civic Zen dogma. And, and I'm like, you're totally missing the point altogether. It's not supposed to be about that at all. So I wanted to take a lighthearted approach. I want to give real world practical advice to everyday people. Will you say it's a show for the independent thinker and anyone who embraces life despite its absurdity? Absolutely. You know, I, I've said on the show before, my show is not for the aspiring Buddhist monk. <laughs> I'm not telling someone to go meditate for five hours at the top of a mountain. What are you telling people if you had to break it down? Uh, to live in the present moment as much as is reasonably possible. That's another thing. You, you'll get a lot of self-help guru types that will say, you know, be in the now, live in the present. And that is great advice, but 
it could also drive you crazy if you're just constantly like, am I, am I living in the now? Am yeah. I living there now? Am I thinking too much about whether or not I'm living there? Right. You, <laughs> Plus you have to have a vision of where you're headed to some extent. So that's what I grapple with. Like, okay, I, I want to be present and I want to live in the now, but I do have to plan to some extent. So I think balancing those two yeah. is probably something that I try to work on. Yeah, I, I envision it, uh, or one of the, the metaphors I like to think about is when you're driving a car, you have a, a rearview mirror, right? And so that might be representative of your past. It's just a small little part of your total view. And occasionally you need to glance up and see what's behind you. But obviously you don't want to spend all your time looking in the rearview mirror. Occasionally glance up, that's fine. I see that, that that thing, good or bad, was in the past, but it's behind me. Let's go forward. I can see down the road. I can see far ahead of me. But for the most part, I need to pay attention to what's right here in front of me. Absolutely. That's really valuable. I'm really glad we did this, by the way. This has been a lot of fun. Where should we send listeners if they want to learn more about you online, social media-wise? I've got a website, sinsandwich.com. They can find out more about the podcast there. The podcast is on any platform where you listen to podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, it's Pandora, Amazon. It's, it's all over the, the place. On Twitter, I'm at Zen Sandwich. And then in Facebook, we have a, a group called The Zen Dog Life. It's a private group, but you can find it through a search. You answer a couple of questions, you're in the group. And again, that's a group that's like, it's not heavy into Zen philosophy. Or, you can be a Christian, you can be an atheist and get something valuable from the stuff that we talk about in those forums. Well, that sounds accessible as far as Facebook groups go. I will be checking that out. And of course, I'll be subscribing to your podcast, Zen Sandwich. I do love that name. <laughs> Thanks so much, Mark, for coming on the show. It was a pleasure. Oh, I enjoyed it. Thanks for your time and good to talk to you. Well, thanks to all my loyal listeners out there. Be sure to share the podcast for me, rate, review. If you haven't already, subscribe. I'll be back next week with an all-new episode of Bucket List Careers. Be well. An ironic media production. Visit us at ironicmedia.com.